bedroom part of the age group that we presented. Except for James. So, mentioning North Branch, we've been doing uh, quite a bit on the history of the Labour Party and of uh, the movements of protests throughout Labour Party history. Um, before uh, the Labour Party, um, the Leftovers, uh, those sorts of people. Um, what always shines through in all protests is the power that the state brings against working people who stand up to them. Um, our last talk at, at North Branch was um, uh, the Merthyr uh, Uprising, um, where commanders executed, uh, others were jailed, um, totally unjustly, uh, but the power of the state has to be obeyed. Somebody has to pay the price for standing up to the state. And the Shrewsbury 24 are a good example of the power of the state with very little evidence, convicted men, sending men to prison, and in effect taking away the livelihood of a lot of them who were blacklisted afterwards. Uh, I wouldn't say too much about this because the Secretary is going to tell us a lot more. Um, but thanks. Tonight for everybody to turn it out, it is a miserable evening. Uh, and I'm going to the Italian news, who's going to guide us through, and um, most welcome. Uh, Thank you very much. <laughs> just to introduce myself, Senator Renshaw from the Sudbury 24 campaign, and as I mean, it was our researcher and treasurer would always say, a convicted picket. He always insists that, that you say that, a convicted picket. And in, in that sense, I am. I was, I was convicted in 1974 of uh, going out picketing, basically. Um, for those who are not aware, because I am aware that there's people in the room who don't know what went on or what happened at the time or what it was all about. In 1971, UCAT, which was my union that time, had come together. It was an amalgamation of the bricklayers, the AUBTW, the Association Society of Woodworkers, which was the joiners, and the ASPND, which was the painters. They come together as one union and were called UCAT. So that was 1971. In 72, both UCAT, TNG, and the GMB, the weather construction sector at that time, called for an all-out strike because of the amount of uh, fatalities we had in the building industry at that time. And it's hard to imagine now, 1972, on average, one person every day was killed. One person every day went to work but didn't return home because they'd been killed on a building site. It had the highest fatality rate of any industry. It had a higher rate than mining. It had a higher rate than mining and agriculture put together. So enough, enough was enough was the call at that time. And we're going to go on strike to make the building worker, the building employer, 
give us better conditions on site and treat us better and also better pay. Because as far as pay went, we were the bottom of the pile. And the, the, the claim at that time, it's hard to imagine it now, 30 for 35 hours. £30 for 35 hours, that was the call. So we're on, on strike for 30 for 35 for better conditions in the building industry. And that's what the strike was about. And it was the first ever National Building Workers Dispute. And it's been the last National Building Workers Dispute. There's never been one since. Never one before, never one since. So we were on strike for just coming up to 13 weeks. We were going all over the country, different uh, pickets in different parts of the country were picketing, bringing sites out to join them in the dispute. Because it started as a selected uh, strike where sites came out and sites stayed in. The sites that stayed in contributed 50 pence a week towards those who were on strike. That's how it started. But it escalated to an all-out stoppage because it just wasn't getting anywhere with the selective strikes. So all over the country, pickets were going around picketed building sites. In North Wales, we're the North Wales Action Committee which met at the Bull and Stirrup pub in Chester because if you think of North Wales, the, where we were, North East Wales, Chester was just on the border so it made sense that we were, we were the North Wales and Chester Action Committee. And we had a visit in August of 1972, uh, 1972 from uh, building workers from Oswestry, Street, again just over the border in Shropshire. So they came to ask if we could give them a hand picketing sites in the Shropshire area because there was lots of big sites that's the words they used, which were still working and they, they picketed them but they hadn't come out, they hadn't joined them. So could we give them a bit of moral support and elbow support and get up there and help them out? So we agreed that we would. That was at the Bull and Stirrup in Chester in August. So September the 6th, 1972, is when we organised coaches from North Wales to go up to Osra Street where we met building workers from Oswestry and Oswestry Labour Club. And then, and only then, did we have any idea where we were going. When we met at Oswestry Labour Club, they suggested a list of sites, and we said, okay, well, we'll go and pick it those sites. So we left Oswestry Labour Club and headed off down the A5. And the first site we came to was a site called Kingswood, which was on the A5. We pulled up at Kingswood, a few lads got off the coach, went up to the site office because the, 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 uh, the, the, the order of the day was we would go to the site, site agent's office, ask the site agent for permission to call the workers together to address them, with the intent of getting them to join us. And I say permission, we, we asked them nicely in that way. So when we got off at Kingswood, what the lads who went up to the site agent's office were greeted with 
was a loaded shotgun. Site 18 was waiting with a loaded shotgun in his office. So that shotgun was taken off him very quickly. The breach was broken. The cartridges were removed. And then, and only then, did we realise there were police officers everywhere. They knew we were coming. We didn't even know ourselves we were going there. But for some, in some unknown circumstances there, the, the police knew we were going, the site agent knew we were coming. <coughs> so that gun was given to the police. And from that moment on, on September the 6th, 1972, the police led us to all the sites. They took us round for the day. They got on the coaches with us, and we had police outriders guiding us because the police said, we know where the sites are that are working, we will take you there. And that's what they did. The police took us all day. There was around 80 police officers all day with us. Not at one point throughout that day was one picket given a warning, no, no name taken, nobody told behave, stop what you're doing. That didn't happen on the day. So we went through the day in that way. At the end of the day, Chief Superintendent, Chief Superintendent Meredith from West Mercia Police came to us as we were about to leave and he said, these were his words, virtually verbatim, you've had a good day's picketing lads, I thank you for the way that you've behaved and conducted yourselves and I wish you all a safe journey home. Those are the parting words from Chief Superintendent Meredith of West Mercia Police and that was September the 6th, 1972. A week after that, the strike came to an end. It finished. The employers had conceded and paid us virtually all the demands that we made. So it came to an end. Five months later, February the 14th, Valentine's Day, that's nice, wasn't it? February the 14th, 1973, Police from West Mercia swooped on houses in North Wales and arrested 31 building workers from North Wales and took them back to police stations in Shrewsbury, in Wrexham, in Flint for me, in Hollywell. They took them back and they questioned them about their activities on September the 6th 1972. They had photographs and on the photographs they had arrows on them pointing to different people and their names written above the arrow. Of those 31, 24 were charged. 24 were formally charged and put on trial. The charge went that on September 6th, although it was different on my form, I'll explain that later, 
1972, you conspired with others to entice people to abstain from their lawful employment. There was an affray, you were charged with an affray. There was unlawful assembly, so you were charged with unlawful assembly. And remember I said, not one name taken, nobody has to do anything. So those were the charges that were laid against us. And that was 24, and we were put on trial. We were, first of all, we went to the Shrewsbury Crown Court for the committal hearings. And at those committal hearings, we said then that the charges were political charges and any trials that would follow would be political trials. The government of the day, and I say that quite clearly, the government of the day said they were not political trials and they were not political charges. It would be an everyday criminal trial held in a criminal court. Well, I've got this little book, I brought it up with me because it's worth looking on this photograph here. This shows us going to the court. There were over 2,000 police officers on duty and you can see them on the photograph. Now, I've never seen a criminal trial in this country with over 2,000 police officers on duty. I've never seen it. Never seen it before. I've never seen it since. But that's what they call an everyday criminal trial. After the committal hearings, when 24 has been committed for trial, we were due to appear in court. We were committed as one block of 24. Now came the playing of the state. They broke it down into three separate trials. So we've been committed as 24. <coughs> we're now going to have three trials in batches. Not 24 in the box together. <coughs> the highest law person in the country at that time was a fellow by the name of Quinton Hogg. People remember him? Yes. Later to become Lord Hailsham. Lord Hailsham unilaterally changed the law for the selection of jurors. He did it. Didn't take it to Parliament. He did it himself. Whereas we could not challenge the jurors as to their profession, their background, we couldn't do it. And that's what Quinton Hogg did. He changed that law for our trial. But there was no political involvement, was there? So the first trial was a trial called Warren and Others versus the Crown. And Des Warren, who's that man there on this photograph, Des Warren was the main man in that first trial. 
And at the end of the trial, three went to jail. Des Warren, Ricky Tomlinson, and Mackenzie Jones. They were all given jail terms. The harshest given to Des Warren and Ricky Tomlinson. Des Warren was given three years jail, and Ricky Tomlinson was given two years jail. Mackenzie Jones's was, and Ricky would tell you himself he was here, it was one of the harshest really. He was given nine months, but the lad was claustrophobic. He couldn't stand even in the cell overnight. He was screaming and jumping up the bars. He couldn't stand it. So that must have been very traumatic for, for Mackie at the time. Then came the second trial. Uh, that trial, by the way, finished on the 19th of December, 1973, just before Christmas. And just a, a little add-on to that. What we did with the North Wales Action Group, we sent a little letter into the lads in jail saying, we'll be with you at Christmas. We'll be with you. This is what we were saying, eh? I can't be there, but I'm with you in thought. They moved them. They thought we were actually going to go there. So they moved them. That was the first start of moving the lads around. Because they couldn't understand what we were saying because it was so fixed on what they were doing. So now the second trial started in January 1974. And that was a trial headed up Murray and others versus the Crown. And at the end of that second trial, three went to jail. Arthur Murray, Michael Pierce, and Brian Williams. They were sent to jail. Then came the third trial, which started in February of 1974. And that was headed up Renshaw and others versus the Crown. And at the start of that third trial, I was in hospital. I'd broken my leg quite severely. So my barrister, Roy Ward, from the Will, he gave my apologies to the judge and said, I'm very sorry, but Mr. Renshaw can't be here. He's in hospital with a, a quite severely broken leg. There's no sympathy coming back from that judge. His response was, check with the hospital if he's fit to travel, if he's fit to travel, I want him here in the morning. And that's what it did. They brought me from my hospital bed to the courtroom. Hard to believe, isn't it? This is for picketing. And I was taken from the War Memorial Hospital in Rill all the way to the court in Shrewsbury. A friend of mine, Kevin Butcher, uh, actually took the front seat out of his car, the passenger seat out, so I could sit in the back as I was in plaster to here, and I could only sit like that with my legs straight out in front of me. And Kevin Butcher, who is, now he's the eldest of the pickets since Ken O'Shea died last year, Kevin took the seat out and he took me every day to my trial. When I got there, 
for the for my trial, my barrister begged me to plead guilty. Actually, you must plead guilty. If you don't plead guilty, you're going down for three years with Des Warren because they've got you listed as Des Warren's right hand man. And I said, well, I'm not pleading guilty. I've no intention of pleading guilty. And because I refused to plead guilty, the court actually put another two charges on me on that day. It's unheard of today, isn't it? But that's what they did. They put a charge of unlawful assembly on me and another charge of a fray on me on the day. So I'm in court, up to here in plaster. Every time I move around, if I want to go anywhere, I've got a three quarters just to move me. Parking on chair to sit with my leg elevated. And that's how I ended up. I was in the box giving evidence with my leg elevated in front of me. And Morris Drake was going through all the uh, prosecution's case. And I said, there must be a mistake somewhere here. And he said, what do you mean? So well, the date that's on my charge sheet, I was in ATM Stanley Hospital in St. Asaph recovering from an operation. So it must be wrong. The judge looked at me, I'm very pleased. <laughs> he looked at me and he said, why did you not tell your barrister this? <laughs> And bear in mind, I was only 24. <laughs> Why did you not tell your barrister this? And I replied with the cheeky little smile I used to have at that time. And I said, if I'd have told my barrister, I think he'd have told the prosecution barrister. And I think they would have come to an agreement. <laughs> I think your terminology for it is plea bargaining. So he wasn't very happy with that. So we had to instruct the jury to forget the charges on that charge sheet. But I've got another two charges on me now, haven't I? Which had been put on on the day that I attended court. So they had to consider those. So while the jury were out at the end of the trial, the defendants go downstairs beneath the court to the cells. Well, they couldn't get me downstairs on the you know, down those stairs because, again, a leg straight, straight out in front, they couldn't do it. So Morris Drake, the prosecution counsel, again, now he says to the judge, what will we do with Mr. Renshaw while the jury are out? And you've got to think about this. The judge said, lock him in the back room of the courthouse, and confiscate his crutches. <laughs> and that's what they did. They put me in the back room of the courthouse and took me crutches away and locked me up until the jury were ready to come back out. It, it takes some believing, doesn't it, that they can behave in that manner to someone. But that's what they did. Back came the jury with guilty verdicts on the charges. But they couldn't have the main ones, could they? So 
So I've, I've said this many a time, so many a time. I always consider myself to be a lucky person in life. I've always been lucky. Perhaps it was a stroke of luck that I broke my leg. I don't know. But having been found guilty of unlawful assembly and found guilty of an affray, I was given a four-month suspended sentence. And that sentence was suspended for two years. The other lads who were up there were all given suspended sentences as well. So nobody went to jail in the third trial because they'd messed it up, I think. So now we're waiting now. There was an appeal put in by Ricky and, and Desi in 1975 when they came out uh, on an appeal. They came out while an appeal was being heard. That appeal was due to be heard by uh, Justice Salmon. He was, the, he was due to, to listen to their appeal. At the last minute, Justice Salmon was withdrawn and the judge put in to hear their appeal was none other than Justice Widgery. There was no chance, was there? So we just Which is put him back in jail. The bloody Sunday. That's the man. Judge, That's the it? man. The man who's been found so guilty <laughs> over Bloody Sunday. Yeah. And at the same time now, he, he, he just sent these lads back to jail. So, Ricky and Desi were put back in jail to complete their sentences. We campaigned all the way through on this as an action group in North Wales, but couldn't get anywhere because at that time, our unions wouldn't give us support. The Labour Party would give us no support. In fact, the lads did more time under the Labour government than they did under the Ted Heath government. They were longer in prison under Labour, which is a sad reflection of what kind of politics, politics we've had within the Labour Party. I know I shouldn't be really political, because we're not talking about political meetings now, because we're in the Euro campaign. <laughs> so, we kept the campaign going. In 2003, we applied for the papers from the trials under the 30-year ruling. 73, 2003. 30 years have gone by. Let's see what the papers say. When we asked for the papers, we were told the papers had been signed away until 2012. Signed off by the Home Secretary, not to be seen. Why? Because it's a threat to national security. Now think about this. Signed off in 2003, they were signed off actually in 2002. So, 12 months before, coming up to the 2003, they've already been signed off to be kept until 2012. Who signed them? That's the man! That's the man. He was the first Home Secretary to sign the papers to be kept because of national security. 
In 2006, that's when we got together the team that we have now in Liverpool to campaign for this whole thing to be overturned. And that's, I've met Harry, who's become a really good friend. Eileen Turnbull, who's from Liverpool. She was a legal officer with the GMB. We've got a fellow by the name of Joe Sim, who's a professor of criminality in the uh, Liverpool University there. Uh, Anne Dobby, who's a, again just workers that come and we meet regularly to campaign against this uh, miscarriage of justice. <coughs> so in 2012, we're coming up to this anniversary date, aren't we? So we asked for the papers again. And we asked for the papers again. This time we've got a Home Secretary by the name of Ken Clark, father of the house, and we're asked for the papers, and we're told that Ken Clark has signed the papers in 2011 to be kept away until the 31st of December 2021. That's not long off now coming up, but <laughs> this, this was 2012 when we asked. So they signed off again. For what reason? A threat to national security. So they kept insisting on this threat. The, what they cite is Section 23 of the Freedom of Information Act. So the papers have been uh, filed away again. Again in, in, in uh, 2012, what we submitted to the CCRC, that's the Criminal Cases Review Commission, because that's the only way we can get back into the Court of Appeal is through the CCRC. We submitted to the CCRC fresh evidence which Eileen had unearthed in her many travels around the country, going to the likes of Kew, Warwick University, the Workers' Library in Manchester, and even Downing Street itself, getting different bits of paper together and trying to put together this paper trail of where things are. So, we put this, this, this new evidence, and one part of the new evidence was, uh, she, she come across a document called Red Under the Bed. Has anybody heard of that? No. Red Under the Bed was a film that was shown on the night that the prosecution had finished putting their case and the judge said the next day, well, that's all right. Even though the, even though the jury had made a decision, that's all right if the film is shown last night. There's nothing untoward in it. That film showed building workers picketing sites. Woodrow Wyatt was the main orator in the film. Some people may remember him, some may not. But that film read under the bed that <coughs> I had unearthed Along with it, when she found it, was a little handwritten note. I would like to see more of this being done. Signed, said Heath. So, was there political involvement? Well, I don't think you can get much higher than that one, can you? So, this stuff was submitted to the CCRC in 
April 2012. In June 2017, having had three case officers on it, three commissioners on it, the CCRC came back and said, you've lost, we can't refer this back to the cause of appeal because there's not enough uh, evidence there, or the evidence that you've given us isn't enough to convince us. So they knocked us back. We met with our legal team, which is Bangman's in London. We met them, we went through it. We had a barrister by the name of Danny Friedman, and he looked at it. By the way, when he's looking at it, he's not, you know, he's, he's looking at it and it's bing, bing, bing. The tools rolling every time. Every minute he's looking at it, the tools rolling. But he finished off looking at it and he reviewed the decision of the CCRC and he said, this needs to be challenged because it's uh, erring in law. So we decided we would challenge it because what they said was we'll do it on a no win, no fee basis. Now that sounds good, doesn't it? No win, no fee. So we went to court in Birmingham on November the 9th last year. And Danny Freak. The CCRC was so confident they didn't even bother sending anybody to the courts in Birmingham. <laughs> they just stayed away. That's how confident they were. But the judge there, Justice Jay, he had our barrister on his feet for two and a half hours. He questioned every aspect of the case. He questioned everything that the, uh, that the evidence we put forward was saying. And he cross-examined our barrister for two and a half hours. And at the end of that, he retired himself and then he came back and he said, I'm referring this back for a judicial review. You should, you should have the right to go for a full judicial review. That's what, that's what we call the permission stage. And he gave us that permission to seek a judicial review. Again, we won. Well, our barrister won. And because we've won, <laughs> we've got to pay him. <laughs> and that's the, I've never thought of that catch before, no win, no fee. If you win, you've got to pay him. So we had to pay the barrister and our legal team. And again, it's all money that gets, you know, we, we, we're, we're selling stuff there, and you know, Harry's there selling t-shirts and mugs and books, and we travel all over the country to speak to groups of good people like yourselves, to try to help you to understand where we're coming from and where we wanna go. So all that money is going out in legal fees. And when we end up with a judicial review, we're talking of tens of thousands of pounds here. 
Some are in the region of 100,000 maybe. We're going to have to pay. If we lose, if we win, hunky-dory, everything's okay. But it's that uncertainty, because who knows will we win? We, we didn't even know we were going to win in Birmingham. The barristers knew we were. So we've got that situation where we've got to raise money for our campaign to keep us going, to keep me and Harry traveling the country, driving up and down. I mean, last week I went to Scarborough on a Wednesday and I was up in Glasgow on a Thursday. And you're just all over the country traveling, but we're committed to it. I'm committed more than Harry because I'm one of the defendants. And I want to clear my name. Because at this moment in time, a good man like myself cannot get a travel visa. They won't give me one. I never went to jail. But I can't get a travel visa. My MP wrote a letter to the American Embassy for me on my behalf and asked, could he please be considered for a travel visa? And he laid out the whole story of the case and my background since then. Because since 1972, I've done a bit of growing up. I was a councillor, county councillor in Flintshire, well, Clue before and then Flintshire after, for just over 30 years. A town and community councillor, a member of the North Wales Police Authority, looking at very confidential information. I was chair of professional standards. But I'm not a fit and proper person to have a travel visa. And I was also mayor of my town, but I've been mayor of my town twice. I have now completely retired. I have nothing to do with the uh, county council or the community council. I still keep my actions going within my own CLP. But I can't get the Labour Party up. Sometimes I felt like doing it, but I just can't do it. And I keep my actions going within the trade union movements. So I'm still active there. But I cannot get a travel visa. So David wrote to the American Embassy. And the American Embassy wrote back and said, we can arrange for Mr. Renshaw to attend one of our embassies, either in Belfast or in London. Where he, will, where he will be given a private hearing. The cost of the hearing will be £150, but we don't hold out that there would be a change in the decision because we have him listed as a subversive <laughs> in our papers. Well, if I'm a subversive, I'm, I quite like the title. Because <laughs> all I ever do is speak up for people. All I've ever done throughout my whole adult working life is speak up for those who are less able to speak up for themselves. That's all I ever did as a counsellor. That's what they've got me listed as, so they, they would not give me a travel visa still. It cost me £65 to be told no. I'm not going to pay another £150 on top of that to be told no again. Because there's nothing written across there that says no. I'm not going to do it. So I still can't get that visa for travelling America and other places where a visa would be required, I can't do it. But I keep on with the campaign, along with Harry and Eileen. We travel around keeping that campaign going. 
to make people aware of what's going on. Now, what I can tell you, and it only came to our knowledge last Monday, Harry? Hmm. Monday, this week? Yeah, beginning of the week. That they give us a date here for the judicial review. And that date is Tuesday, the 30th of April. So they told us last week, this Tuesday. <laughs> they don't give you notice. And our case will be heard between before two High Court judges in the Administrative Courts in Birmingham, where they will take on the uh, take on the case put forward by our barrister and our senior solicitor from Mindman's and also CCRC and our represented. So they will listen to what they've got to say as well. But the, the judge in Birmingham, when he laid out what he was sending it back on, it was on the destruction of evidence. And also the film read under the bed. Because first of all, the film read under the bed, the judge in the original trial should never have allowed that to carry on. He should have called a mistrial. And then the destruction of evidence, he said that just does not happen at any time. No evidence should be destroyed at any time. But in our case, when it went before the courts in 1973, the prosecution counsel had destroyed evidence, namely witness statements that had been taken. And he destroyed his witness statements but very kindly left a paper saying we had to destroy them because at the time of taking them we didn't know what we had to prove. Can you believe that they write that down? <laughs> so that's going back before the courts next week. And I can't say how any judge can look at that and say, well that's alright. You're allowed to destroy evidence, that's okay. <laughs> Because they're going to get themselves in the right muddle on that one, aren't they? Because it's not allowed to destroy evidence. And that's the situation we're in at the moment. We're right up to date now. You're one of the last meetings apart from you'll be in McCunstall on Monday, <coughs> keying ourselves up for the morning after. But you're one of the last audiences that will hear that before the judicial hearing which will take place next Tuesday. And what we've asked, because Harry speaks on behalf of the campaign, I speak on behalf of the pickets, we do not want people demonstrating outside the courts. We didn't have anybody demonstrating on November the 9th, we don't want anybody demonstrating next week. We just want to go in there dignified, let the case be put forward and then if the judges give us the right to go to the Court of Appeal then we'll come out screaming and then when we go to the Court of Appeal that's when people can come with banners and shouting and screaming and making all the noise you want at the Court of Appeal but not at the judicial hearing so that's what, that's what we've asked Eileen has written to every General Secretary 
that's affiliated to our organisation, explaining our situation and telling them we don't want people there. It's not that we don't want you there, we'd love to have you there. We, at this moment in time, it is not the right and proper thing to do. So that's the situation we're in. <coughs> and hopefully, say, hopefully, I'm always a lucky person, we're going to come out of there uh, more than likely next Tuesday, more than likely because they're going to sit until they've heard it all. It was, it was set for one and a half days, but the two judges have said that they will sit a long day in the hope of hearing it all on the one day. So more than likely, if that is the case, the decision will be deferred. So we won't have an answer on the day. It will be deferred until they've had a chance to discuss amongst themselves and then come up with some kind of an answer of how do we get out of destruction of evidence. Because I have not a clue how they get out of that one. Because it's such a wrong thing to do. But this is how the state stitched us up in 1973-74. Because that's what they did, they stitched us up. Ted Heath's government stitched us up. 24 lads, most didn't know each other. We were just picked at random. That's how they picked us, at random. There's nothing special about any of us. They just picked us at random and took us to court with 2,000 police officers surrounding the court in the public gallery, dog handlers. They made us look like the villains that you've never seen before. That's what they made us look. And that was all for the people of Shrewsbury. They made us look like the biggest villains you've ever seen. Even in court, referring to us as the likes of the Cray Twins. <laughs> yeah. And it's, we, had a, we had a hearing, not a hearing, we had a debate in Parliament in 2014. January 2014, there was a debate. One question was on the question paper. Should the papers from the 24 be released? Yes or no? A three-hour debate took place. During that discussion, one Tory MP got up, fellow by the name of Sir General Howarth, who was the MP for all the shots, he's not sitting any longer. He got up. He abused the right of parliamentary privilege. He said we killed somebody on the day. <laughs> That's what he said. <laughs> we have killed somebody on the day. If you want to see it, go on our website. Pick up the, the, the debate in Parliament. It's there for three hours. You'll hear him. That's what he said. That's abusing the right of parliamentary privilege. But at the end of that debate, 120 votes for the release of the papers, three against. The government said, still can't have the papers. <laughs> they will not, for whatever reason, they will not release those papers. And all we want is for those papers to be released so anybody in this room can have a look at the papers and make a decision for yourself. Were we at wrong or were we not? That's all we ask. We're not asking you to say, well, we weren't guilty. 
get the papers and have a look yourself. Make your own minds up. And that's all anybody should be able to do really, is make your own minds up what went on at that time. But of all of that, that picketing that went on, 13 weeks, one site was picked. One site, and that was Brookside in Telford. And Brookside just happened to be part of the Telford development at that time, which was being built by no other than Robert McAlpine. Who again just happens to be treasurer of the Tory party. All these coincidences come together, don't they? So that's where we're up to. You're right up to date. We're lucky to go to the judicial review Tuesday next week, and we're hoping that our, our barrister and our senior solicitor is going to put forward a case of all cases, and those judges are going to come down and say, right. This needs to go back to the CCSC with a recommendation that it goes back to the Court of Appeal. And then we can start shouting. Because the fight has been going on now for 46 years. And I'm getting tired. <laughs> Ali's getting tired. I am, believe it or not, I am the youngest of the pickets. And I'm a threat to national security. Thank you very much for listening. Are you aware of what Section 23 of the Freedom of Information Act says? Yeah. Basically, they're claiming that the security services have been involved in gathering the information on you. Well, we know that because one piece of information that Eileen did uncover was a, a, a document that was signed by Sir Michael Hanley. If you check on Sir Michael Hanley, he was Director General of MI5 from 1970 to 1976. And he sent a letter in to Downing Street saying these people must be kept in prison. But in order to keep deferring the papers, then they've got to claim that it's still an ongoing operation. Well, we know it is again, we know it is, because we know that we've got not just the, the likes of MI5, we've got officers from Met working on building sites. Yeah. You, you must have heard about the Spy Cops scandal. <laughs> that you've got officers there from the Metropolitan Police who were trained as police officers but working as gangers on a building site yeah, yeah, yeah. or joiners on a building site or whatever. They've even fathered children because they took up partners. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. They've even done that. And they're still getting covered up, by the way. Yeah, yeah. So Section 23 is all about the security services and the release of information. Shocking. Yeah, I, I became involved with the campaign in the 70s when I was a student union official. And uh, the National Union of Students in Wales organised meetings with your campaign, um, jointly with the Welsh Language Society because the laws that they used to prosecute you, the conspiracy laws, were also used against the Welsh Language Society. Yeah. And so Mick Antonew, who's a, uh, you know Mick? Yeah. He, he, he organised those meetings. 
Um, and I, su I suspect part of this is, of course, the conspiracy laws are still on the statutes um, and that they don't want to admit that they've been used politically in the past. They were used against the Welsh Language Society. And what they did there, one of the things they did was they, um, they fixed the jury. They fixed the jury in the trial. And we could see that that was done because of a jury in Carmarthen uh, against the uh, senior officers of the Welsh Language Society. Not one member of the jury had a Welsh name. Now, that is almost impossible to do. You know, that's like getting 53 monkeys to write Shakespeare, you know, <laughs> if you give it enough time. It's not possible. There were no Thomases. There were no Davises. <coughs> there were no Williams. There were no Morgans. There were no Evans. They were all English or Scottish names. And that way, they ensured that they were very likely to get a non-Welsh-speaking um, uh, jury. And so these laws have been used consistently, not purely against the trade union movement, but by the state in the past as well. And so obviously they don't want to admit the degree of, uh, of which they have been manipulating the legal system uh, and that they are still manipulating the, le the, the legal system. And as you say, it is so sad to think that the Labour Party has been involved in this cover-up yeah. over the years on a number of cases. Yeah. You know, and, are and have been up until now, you know, um, colluding in this. Um, and I just want to say thank you very much indeed for fighting. Uh, thank you very much indeed for, for carrying on. I mean, it's very similar to the Orgreave case as well. <laughs> this, is the, this is largely aimed at the trade union movement. Yeah. Um, and your struggle is, is, should be a, a, a massive example to us all, I think. As because most of us have, have been trade unionists and have stood on picket lines and have been very guilty of that very conspiracy, the conspiracy of joining together in a trade, trade union movement and organising picketing. Um, and so thank you very much indeed for your efforts, you know. Yeah. If I just answer, answer that, yeah. Mick, mm. Mick, unfortunately, was used to speak at... Uh, next week, next week. Right. I seen Mick last week at the Labour Party conference in Clavdino. Right. Uh, he's not going to be able to make it because he, he, he wasn't aware that the time he brought forward to five o'clock. Right. And he said he won't be able to get away from uh, no. from the assembly before that. Would so, Tom I, I'm, friend, I'm big friends with Mick. Yeah. Did, did you, you know, he was a solicitor with Thompson's. With Thompson's, Have yeah. Thompson's given you support? Because they've been, they've, they were my trade unions uh, Solicitors and they're normally quite good on these things, but but um, obviously they can't support everything. Yeah. But they are very. Tom, Thompson's. I mean, hmm. when when we met when we met in uh, in Birmingham on November the ninth, hmm. when we came out of the out of the, the uh, court in Birmingham, we wanted somewhere to meet. Hmm. Straight across the road, we were stayed down in Thompson's office. No problem. They fitted us up with an office <coughs> drinks and refreshments there. They 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 give us help. In fact. Eileen Turnbull's husband works with, works with Thompson's right. as well, right. but Thompson's have been good with us. Yeah. So I, I, I'm not going to knock any solicitors, by the way, no. because every time we speak to solicitors, they're always offering to give us advice. Mm -hmm. But obviously, when it comes to the big, big side costs. of it, yeah. uh, they, 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 they can't get involved unless we engage them. Mm -hmm. And uh, Bindman's, we've got them engaged. Mm -hmm. They're doing it at, I think it's half the rate, yeah. Harry, mm -hmm. isn't it? They, 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 they're charging us half the rate that they would normally charge. Yeah. So other than that, there's not a lot more we can do other than just keep going and hopefully win. 
Harry? Yeah. Um, back in 1967, I worked on the Barbican, building the Barbican. I was a plumber. I was a plumber's mate on there, and whilst I was there, there was um, the longest strike in British building history, right, which lasted for 13 months. And um, during that strike, I used to go to the picket line every morning and watch the way in which the City of London police would take individual people off the picket line and smack them about and intimidate them. And at that time, it was clear that building workers across the UK were starting to get um, very concerned about the way in which the employers were allowing the conditions on sites to deteriorate and also the way in which um, workers were being victimised if they organised in, in the formal trade unions. Right. Now, my, my big feeling at that time was that the state right, knew exactly what they were doing in the way that they were using the police during, during that dispute. And I'm pretty sure that at the end of that dispute, which, the, which the, the, they did actually win, right, although a lot of the people who had been out on strike for 13 months had actually drifted away from the dispute, they did actually win the dispute in the end through, through going through ACAS. But I think what happened after that, the government, um, the Tory government, decided that they were not going to let that kind of situation get a hold across the building industry because so many of the people who actually owned those big companies, right, like Thornycroft and McAlpine and the rest of them, right, the, you know, the John Langs and, you know, they were all giving money to the Conservative Party. They were all in it. So they were, they were able to put an influence onto... Um, the government of the day in order to make sure that you guys were taken to the cleaners. They had to make an example, it seems to me. Right? And you just happened to be in that place at that particular time. It could have been any building site across the country. But they were determined, like they did with the miners later on, after Salty Gates and all of that, <coughs> during the miner strike, Thatcher was determined that she was going to smash up the miners at the same time. Yeah. And so there is, you know, there, there, there is a kind of a linkage right the way across in the way that governments, government has been acting <coughs> towards militant trade unionism. Right? And when I say militant, I don't mean militant in the terms of militant, the organisation, <coughs> but people who are committed to doing something for their members. So, you know, I just, I'd like you to, to speak a little bit more about what you think was actually going on um, in terms of the, the politicians and the, the owners of the, you know, the building industry and, the, and whether you think there was a definite collusion there or not to stitch you up. Well, there was, there was lots of collusion there. I mean, we, we know that uh, McAlpines were linked in with the Soli Party. Mm. Yeah. Does anybody remember Sir Keith Josephs? Yeah. Head of Bovis. Head of Bovis, Keith Josephs. Ted Heath set up in 1969 
the SDS, the Special Demonstration Squad. He set that up in 1969. That is still in place today. And that's where we get these officers coming, coming from, going out to 